Hello, Great Minds. It's Tuesday, and that means it's finally time for Drinks with Great Minds in History to make its triumphant return and wrap up the Nappy 3 saga, as we get ready to explore something that has been brought up a few times on the show now, but never really specifically discussed, the Monroe Doctrine. So welcome to the show, everyone. As always, I'm your host, Mr. DGMH, otherwise known as Zach DeBacco, and today we are going to discuss one of my favorite little topics, one that has been brought up so many times on this show, the Monroe Doctrine. I mean, it has shown up twice in this season alone. Napoleon III made me think about it during the Lincoln presidency for the first time, and I mean, it has ties to all sorts of issues on the podcast, from Bonaparte's to Theodore Roosevelt all the way to World War II. Side note, I'm in the middle of dealing with a massive hurricane issue. Fuck you, Hurricane Ian, in case you missed that on the update. So, I apologize again for this one being late, but that's why. If you're in Florida, I hope you stayed safe and your damage was minimal. Uh, And Hurricane Ian pretty much fucked me up for the rest of the season. I I put out an announcement about it, but that's kind of the trend of Season 3. So, I will do my best to get, you know, uh, a solid, steady, safe end to this, this season. But cheers, let's get back to the Monroe Doctrine. Since it is apparently so deeply rooted in the show's history and topics, I figured we should jump all the way back to the beginning. No, not Cortez. That wouldn't make any fucking sense. Of course, I mean George Washington. Which I know is still under construction. Sorry, I'm doing the best I can, but surprise, it's going to be out next Tuesday. So wait, the Monroe Doctrine, Washington, something about that timeline doesn't really add up. Well, actually, it does. You see, the Monroe Doctrine was essentially America's proclamation to the world saying, we are here, Latin America is free, and we aren't going anywhere. But it was also a staunch proclamation of neutrality in European affairs, which is a big GW thing. Neutrality was one of those great points that our second great mind made in his now famous farewell address. In guiding the nation towards its future, Washington promoted the simple idea that staying out of the epic shit show that was, is, well, that will go with was, European politics. At that point, including the tumult of the French Revolution and beyond. And it was probably a good idea for the infant United States. I mean, he wasn't really wrong. Napoleon was on the rise, war was about to engulf the entire continent of Europe, the mess of 1848 that we recently discussed was coming to a theater near you, plus the rise of Prussia, holy fuck. So, Georgie seemed to be right. Europe was going to be in an endless shitstorm of war and revolution, and more war and more revolution for the next hundred plus years. But what does that, neutrality that is, look like? George Washington actually once remarked, quote, To be prepared for war is the most effective means of preserving peace. Now that's interesting. Here GW is essentially putting forth the idea that having a navy and an army that can kick ass is a great way to prevent one from having to actually go and kick ass. That sounds a little familiar. It sounds like Teddy's big fucking stick. Yes, Georgie and Teddy weren't so different after all. But is that really the way to go? Well, it might be, but it wasn't always. Sure, John Adams built up the Navy, Hamilton created the Coast Guard, and even Tommy Jay went to war with pirates. Of course, Madison had to deal with the Napoleonic Wars in the War of 1812, but then we get James Monroe and his Robin-like sidekick John Quincy Adams. Actually, in the comic book geek coming out in me for a second here, in this scenario, uh, John Quincy Adams would probably be more like Alfred doing all the real work in the background that no one really sees. So James Monroe, fifth president of the United States of America, had a totally different mindset on neutrality, when instead he promoted this idea, saying, quote, Preparation for war is a constant stimulus to suspicion and ill will. I mean, if the Cold War of Winnie Churchill's day or the Franco-Prussian shitshow don't prove... 
don't prove fuck who types this shit doesn't prove that true then i don't really know what does so then what does that look like that is monroe's neutrality well that is the whole fucking point of this episode so we should probably talk drinks first Today, I am finishing off the last tequila of the saga. It's called Fortaleza, and it didn't disappoint, but I'm also going to be doing a shot of the other three to freshen my memory, as today we are rating not just one, but actually all four. So, if I start to ramble or slur, you've been warned. Well, let's get to it. The Monroe Doctrine. I actually make my students write and sing parodies of their favorite songs about this topic every single year. Is it evil? Why, yes. Yes, it is. But as a result, no one ever forgets old Jimmy Monroe and his doctrine. Now let's figure out what Monroe had to say. But first, it's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. So I think I should start by answering the simple question, who the fuck is James Monroe? Well, in short, he was the last of the would-be Virginian dynasty, the triumvirate of the South. Jefferson, Madison, and of course, James Monroe. These three, allied as they may have been, really operated very differently in their presidencies, and like all leaders of the early republic, guided the nation through some unique growing pains. Not really here to talk about all that. I will say, a fun fact right off the bat though, as we aren't covering the greatish mind that is Jimmy Monroe, he died on the 4th of July, which wouldn't be all that weird if he wasn't the third of the first five presidents to do so. He also has one of the best-looking presidential portraits of them all. I mean, that's just my opinion, but it also just isn't wrong. Eerie, portrogenic, or no, James Monroe entered the presidency after Madison, serving from 1817 to 1825, ushering in and overseeing a so-called era of good feelings, which really just meant that there weren't two strong political parties in the nation, and James here really didn't have anyone giving him a lot of shit. Sounds like a political dream. Of course, he was a Virginian, he owned slaves, so he was definitely flawed as the rest of the pantheon of would-be American deities of the American Revolution. Speaking of the revolution, I guarantee you've seen Jimmy in action, as it is he who is holding the flag in Emanuel Lutz's famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware. Before becoming president, he served as Washington's minister to France, actually attempting to secure Thomas Paine and the Marquis de Lafayette's release from prison. He would later dine with the latter during his presidency, when Lafayette made his famous tour around the United States in 1824. After that, he served as Jefferson's minister to the United Kingdom, and served two terms as the governor of Virginia, and eventually served as Madison's secretary of war and later state. But that's enough fun facts. James Monroe's presidency was witness to a peaceful time in U.S. history after the Napoleonic Wars and War of 1812, and during the very period when Spain lost its American colonies. And really, that's all we need to know for today. Okay, fine, he also oversaw the signing of the Missouri Compromise, which was shit, but still it's worth noting, as it is one of the earliest direct causes of the American Civil War, but that isn't the line I'm concerned with right now. We will save that mess for next season. So let's do a bit of a jump. On December 2nd, 1823, President James Monroe presented his famous Monroe Doctrine, but was it really just that simple? Jimmy shows up, proclaims a policy, and the rest is history? No, of course it fucking wasn't. Hell, it wasn't even called a Monroe Doctrine until 1852. Beyond that, it wasn't even really a doctrine, nor a presidential proclamation, it was just a State of the Union address to Congress. The Monroe Doctrine isn't, wasn't, and probably will never be law, nor did it, nor am I sure if it was ever intended to have the weight of law. However, it certainly seemed to carry that kind of weight when it came to dealing with U.S. foreign policy issues across America's history. You know, my classroom textbook likes to say that the Monroe Doctrine President Monroe put forth had two central ideas. I would say it's better to break it down into around four. 
so let's look at what it did. In short, Monroe, operating like some sort of 15th century pope, put forth the Monroe Doctrine, essentially drawing an imaginary vertical line in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Getting Tordesilla flashbacks here, but let's break this down a little bit more. First, there's the simplest point. Europe, stay on your side of the Atlantic, and we, that is America, will stay on ours. More specifically, he says that American states are no longer to be considered subject for future potential colonization by any world power, and of course he meant those fucking European colonizers. But there always has to be a little give and take, so he promises that America will in turn stay on their side of the Atlantic promising neutrality in all European matters. Those are the biggies, but there's more to it. The US also vowed that if any European power aimed to recolonize a newly independent state, that the USA would intervene to protect independence, you know, because that's our thing. And in the spirit of maintaining neutrality, the US government also promised that any still existing colonies, i.e. Cuba, would not be forcibly liberated or freed. For now, anyway, because McKinley and Teddy, of course, would say fuck that. But all this raises a few questions. How did Europe feel about it? How did Latin America feel about this? And how the fuck was the US, who barely had an army or a navy, going to defend this bold claim? To the first question, let's turn to our Napoleon III saga for examples. First, Napoleon III didn't really seem to give a shit, as we saw, but that's not really who I mean. Here I want to discuss Prince Metternich of Austria, a key voice in the wake of Napoleon I's reign and conquest, responded to the doctrine saying, quote, This new act of revolt by the United States would grant new strength to the apostles of sedition and reanimate the courage of every conspirator. Well yeah, that's kind of the fucking point. And why the hell does an Austrian prince who had no colonies even care? Oh, because he was scared, scared of the masses rising up in revolution, which would totally happen after his death. To the second point, Latin America, well, they had to love this. The US supporting their cause, promising to stand up for them as needed, it gave legitimacy and recognition to their independence, but that also came from Britain, who was doing the same thing in hopes of securing access to new trade opportunities, which leads us to the final point, how could the US possibly defend this bold claim? Simple, Britain also supported it. In fact, it was originally going to be made as a joint statement between the two powers. But Monroe didn't want to seem like Britain's lackey and made the proclamation on his own. But Britain supporting this meant that they would stand alongside the United States to defend their trade interest in these newly independent countries that were previously closed to British trade. But turning again to JQA, Adams did note, quote, the president, while not believing it would come to war, was prepared to defend South American liberty. So, you know, it was basically a big bluff, one that really was never tested, I guess, until the First and Second World Wars. So what's the impact? Well, not much. That is, until long after Monroe's death. I mean, I guess Latin America did retain its independence from Spain and Portugal. I suppose you could pretend that that was because of Monroe's doctrine if you really want to, but I'm not sure that it was. But it would drive policy alongside Washington's farewell address towards neutrality and protectionism of the American hemisphere for more than a century. As mentioned, this has been all over the podcast, even if it wasn't directly mentioned. As Seward made his great folly buying Alaska from Russia, I'm sure the Monroe Doctrine was discussed. As Teddy Roosevelt extended his influence into Panama and the Caribbean, he justified his actions with the Monroe Doctrine. When World War I and II dominated Europe and most of the world, the US hid behind the Monroe Doctrine as the world seemed to burn. Even President Trump cited it when discussing his potential involvement in Venezuela during his presidency. 
So that's the Monroe Doctrine, at least what it did, but I guess we should probably go back and see what prompted Monroe to make this little proclamation in the first place. This one's a bit trickier, as historians have debated the actual motivations behind Monroe's little speech turned doctrine. Let's start with the simplest question, to protect Latin American independence. While that is probably the most admirable justification, and it is certainly one of the key points Monroe prompted in the language of the speech. But there are other issues, like defending the integrity of America's borders as Russia creeped down the western coast of modern-day Canada toward Oregon Territory, while some others have even emphasized that it was a warning primarily directed at France warning them against any sort of Bourbon alliance to restore Spain's colonies. But could it really be that simple? Maybe, I mean that has been the generally accepted answer since the 1920s, but there are other answers too. Historian Edward Tatum emphasized the influence of curtailing or even distrusting British ambitions in Latin America, a sort of warning to tread lightly in these newly independent countries, a warning that the U.S. could not really back up at all, especially against Great Britain. While others, like the historian who was most definitely hated by his a-hole, by a-hole, by his asshole parents who named him William Williams, argued that this was the proclamation of an American empire. I always had trouble accepting that one, though. It seems a little far-fetched. Then there's the elephant in the room, 1824. Monroe was president, and he was most certainly a politician. That is, it was election season, but Monroe wasn't up for re-election, so what could be the big deal? The answer is John Quincy Adams, the document's primary author, who was running for president in that year. Whether it was American nationalism and national pride, or boosting JQA's chances in the upcoming election, at the heart of all this, historians like Ernest May and Jay Sexton have emphasized that the Monroe Doctrine was greatly influenced, if not more so, by domestic politics. Sexton specifically turns back to the War of 1812 and the idea that if the threat of foreign invasion wasn't addressed, it could come to America's doorstep and, I don't know, burn the capital to the ground again. I'm not sure exactly what I believe. I mean, politicking is at the center of just about every American decision, and 1824 would end up being one of the most contentious presidential races of them all. Looking strong in the eyes of Britain and France certainly had to be an influence as well, and uh, while I don't think it was the proclamation of an empire, I do kind of see it as Monroe's assertion that the US is here and here to stay, and Latin America was too. I don't believe that Monroe wanted war, but I also don't know that he really cared that much about Latin American independence. But he cared about his nation. At its core, the Monroe Doctrine aimed to protect exactly that, the nation, the ideals it upheld, and the areas most directly influenced by her. This truth becomes more and more clear when one realizes that the threat of France had been curbed, that Russia's empire in America was like three Russians hunting seals, and Britain, under the direction of their foreign minister George Canning, had made attempts to work peacefully in a joint effort along the United States to protect Latin independence. So lofty fears of invasion by European nations are eye-catching answers to the issue, but the politicking can't be ignored, so we always have to make sure that we give some credit to Quincy Adams in this thing too. So how does this connect to Napoleon III or even France? Well, as mentioned, there was the would-be threat to Latin American independence from that of a Bourbon alliance, but then there's also pastries. That is the fun little war that started over French pastry chefs living in Mexico. That's a beautiful mess that I just don't have time to get into right now. But during our latest Great Minds Day, Napoleon III's little Mexican expedition might have found him at odds with Honest Abe himself, which might have also made for quite the interesting matchup. But I'm sure that tall, honest Abe Lincoln looked at La Petite Napoleon with some frustration as Napoleon III plotted and schemed in Mexico. But Lincoln had to be very careful. Any outward aggression towards France, 
branch, any outward aggression toward France might push them to align with the Confederacy in a strange reprisal of the American War for Independence in which France once again helped to birth a new American nation. Still, Abe and his shit successor, Andy Johnson, would not be distracted for long, and Napoleon's little plans in Mexico were, by 1864, running a real risk of conflict with a now less distracted American nation as Prussia also loomed on their borders. Well, that's it, the Monroe Doctrine. Let's wrap this up and talk drinks. Tonight, I am doing a flight. My tequila of choice, El Padrino, was my go-to on shots, so we didn't need to rate that again, as I think I already have. But in recap, it's a solid tequila. Smooth, flavorful, totally 5 or 6 for taste, price is good too, coming in at $25.99 on sale. It is my go-to, it's always on my shelf, and if I didn't give it 17 or 18 points, then I was being fucking stupid. It is really my perfect choice. But tonight, I am reading a tequila suggested by my regular Friday bartender at my local after-school safe place, Irma's Tacos and Tequila Bar. Without this place, I would literally find few joys in my work week. In seeking out a fourth tequila for this month, I turned to her for a suggestion. She pointed me towards a small batch tequila produced and bottled by a family in an estate in Alisco, Mexico. It's called Fortaleza. And it didn't disappoint. This repo was perfect. The price was reasonable, a shot is like $10, and a bottle at Total Wine is just around $52. Same as Kevin Hart's. Was it the best for the month? I'd have to say no, but it was certainly a 5 or 6 for taste. So let's jump to that. Four tequilas, Don Julio Blanco, Kevin Hart's Gran Coromino Crystal Repo, Mr. DGMH's go-to El Padrino Reposado, and finally Fortaleza because I was too cheap to buy a shot of Clooney's Casamigos, as I felt like I was just paying for a name. Tonight, I will be choosing the best ones from the four I drank this month. Three awards to give, smoothest, best price, and Mr. DGMH's choice. Up first, smoothest. Don Julio is always smooth, but it's not my favorite. But it was the first tequila that got me into drinking tequila. I don't love the taste, but it's smooth as hell, but not as smooth as Gran Coromino. This shit looks and goes down like water, even more so than Don here. So, the first award goes to Kevin Hart and Gran Coromino. Next is price, but with price, it's more of a bang-for-your-buck kind of issue, and it's a lot harder of a question to answer. Gran Coromino is definitely worth every penny, a great price for a more top-tier tequila, as is Fortaleza. But here, I have to stay true to Old Reliable. El Padrino may not be as smooth as the others, but it has a much more modest price point. It is half the price of every other tequila on this list and yet it really tastes just about as good. It isn't quite as smooth, but it is every bit as unique and tasty. Well, that's not quite true. Finally, my favorite, the DGMH Choice. I have never had a tequila that tastes quite like Gran Coromino. It is by far the favorite of the month, plus it has the best bottle. Appeal on the shelf always matters to me, and it fucking should to you, too. So there you have it. Gran Coromino comes out with two little crowns, but El Padrino gets one because I know and promise you I will always have a bottle of it on my shelf. Well, that's it. If you enjoyed this episode of Drinks with Great Minds in History, then please consider leaving the show a great, hopefully five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at DGMH History, and be sure to join in the conversation over on the DGMH Facebook group. Plenty of fun chats and memes shared there. If you're all caught up and looking for even more DGMH or just love the show, then we hope you'll consider supporting the show over on the DGMH Patreon page. Their listeners can get access to even more great content, including bonus psych and shots conversations, pre-game chats, extra 
extra moments with Mr. DGMH, another extra moment with Mr. DGMH now on the 30 Years War, plus Colin chats China, where Colin chats with me about the rich history of China, and Pete chats Portugal, where I chat with Colin about Portugal's mostly forgotten history. And now Colin joins us with his own special, A Moment with My High School History Teacher, where he discusses topics that he loves to teach in his classroom, starting with the colonization of Africa. Well, let's raise a glass of tequila or two to, well, tequila. Plus Napoleon III. Shout out to Cheevers for calling him Nappy 3. Again, I absolutely fucking love that. Nappy 3 was a fun one for me to cover, and it led me back to the Monroe Doctrine, which honestly needed covered at some point. But that's a wrap on the Nappy 3 saga and our final great mind of Season 3. Still more to come in the bonus season, so we hope you'll keep listening, and of course, cheers! Cheers!